Radio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review. Joining us later is uh, Jeremy Greco and also Alec Lewis of The Athletic. But on first with us now is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Happy to kick off this asynchronous uh, Royals Review podcast we yeah. got going on. Yeah, it had to be a little. We had a kind of record at different times not everyone can make it together at the same time but i did want to get your take and jeremy's take as, as well as hear from alec lewis as well so that's kind of things will work out pretty well uh, and of course what i want to hear from all of you guys is kind of your reaction to the big news of the week the royals did fire uh coach Jerry, terry hitting coach terry bradshaw they all you know, they got off to a slow start uh they scored the fifth fewest runs per game in the american league had the third worst ops in baseball uh, and ultimately, Bradshaw was the one that lost his job. Uh, they ended up uh, promoting, or I don't know, re- reassigning Alex Zumwalt from the front office uh, to uh, the hitting coach. Um, and Mike Tosar also joins the Major League staff. Uh, Bradshaw had been with the organization since 2000, uh, and it was the hitting coach since 2018. Uh, David Lesky at Inside the Crown wrote that Bradshaw had done some good things. Uh, he wrote a little bit about his work with Mark Tian way back in the day, but... Lately, he had heard that some of the players were kind of starting to tune him out. What was, uh, I guess, what was your initial reaction to Bradshaw kind of getting the boot this week? Well, I was uh, kind of surprised. I don't, I don't know about you. I'm interested to see. Or were you surprised that he was, he was the choice? Yeah, I think most fans expected if there was going to be a coach let go. I mean, the obvious choice was Cal Eldred. Uh, Bradshaw, I, you know, there were some grumblings from fans about displeasure with him and obviously the offense has not played well but i don't know what why do you think it was it was bradshaw ultimately they got they got cut yeah i think so yeah that's that's the main thing that stuck out to me is when i when i learned about it um which was actually in our slack channel i i, I saw somebody had posted it and it was like huh not like a huh like this is bad or something i just didn't expect it because um the royal's biggest problem has been developing pitching and this has been true this year this has been true last year this has been true the last like decade and a half earlier this season i looked up some some information on homegrown starters so basically what i what i did is i looked at since about like 2011 or so so it was about you know four or five years after more and that front office was able to you know set up shop basically since then through you know this year how many um under 30 starters had they uh, had had like a three win above replacement season. And the Royals had the fewest out of anybody, which should surprise no one. But I, I, I thought that was interesting because it, you know, puts a little bit into perspective because it feels like, you know, other teams can develop starting pitching. We see, we read about, you know, starting pitching being a, being a problem and being difficult to develop, and it is for everyone, but it's particularly difficult for the Royals, and the Royals just haven't done so, so well. They've been pitching poorly. I And I guess everyone else thought Cal Eldred would be the guy in the chopping blocks. But I think, I think, and I would imagine the reason why this is true, is that the Royals had more of a uh, substitute uh, ready to go in Alex Zubalt, um and in Mike Tozar. Um, that seemed like the obvious move uh, to replace Bradshaw with the guys who were responsible with, uh, in Zumwalt's case, responsible with the revival of MJ Melendez and Nick Prado from being nobody's to back to being top prospects. That was all him um, and his team. Um, and then Mike Tozar basically turned Jorge Soler around and made you know Salvador Perez into a you know the elite slugger that he has been the last couple of years when he's been healthy. And um, so 
the Royals already had that set up, and that made total sense to do that. I think that's probably why they made that specific move. I don't know if there's a similar kind of move that they can make on the pitching side that would be like, ah, yes, this makes a lot of sense. This is, you know, a guy or guys who have had um, experience and proven track record of success, which is what Zumwalt and Tozar have. Um, so I think that's probably why they did it. But I mean, you know, it, it makes sense. The Royals had to change something, right? They had to change something. They were just so bad. The fan anger and what seems like some rustlings in the clubhouse had gotten loud enough that the Royals basically had to do something. Um, and importantly, the Royals thought that they would be good enough this year that being bad was a shock. Um, and I don't think that was kind of the same thing as in years past, right? Um, so a, n- a number of different scenarios going on here. Yeah, Zumwalt had been the senior director for player development and hitting performance. Um, I think it was kind of interesting that they chose him. Uh, and I, 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 I've heard a lot of nothing but great things about him. Like, and he's been praised for his work with Bobby Wood Jr. and, and, and MJ Melendez and Nick Prado at the alternate site on in 2020 when uh, there was no minor league season. Um, I guess he seemed kind of like more kind of a big picture guy, like a... I'm going to implement this system from the top down and here's how we're going to implement it. So it's kind of an unusual role for him to go from a kind of more front office role to a hitting coach role. Also, when you consider they already had Keone, Keone Derena, who had just been hired as an assistant hitting coach, who could have been promoted to hitting coach. And they had Mike and they added Mike Tozar to the um, staff who could have been, you know, maybe they could have been like co hitting coaches or something like that. So it's, it seems like they have a lot of cooks in the kitchen now, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if it's kind of understood Zumwalt's in charge. Uh, but I, I, it was kind of curious the way they did it. I don't know, you know, the complete structure, organizational structure, how things will be delegated. I, I do know that Dayton Moore and J.J. Piccolo have been making the rounds in the media today and uh, this week, and they did talk a little bit about, like, being prepared on a daily basis, especially matchups and uh, approaches and it sounded like maybe Bradshaw wasn't doing a great job of, of getting guys ready for those those kind of day to day matchups. Whereas Zumalt is kind of the, the details oriented guy who is maybe on top of that more. I, I'm just kind of reading behind, between the lines there, so you know we'll see. It doesn't sound like Zumalt is going to be like the permanent hitting coach. Like it sounds like he's just kind of there to um, kind of maybe re remind some of the younger guys of what they've worked on in the minors uh, and then they'll reassess maybe in the, the year. It, it seems like, you know, that they'll, they'll probably one of these guys will be the hitting coach next year. Uh, and I don't expect them to make like big improvements <laughs> this summer. Uh, Long time commenter uh, and, and you can follow him on Twitter, uh, BH in, in, in depth independence, I guess um, he, he made the point that like, this is about the same time they reassigned Andre David, like, was it back in 2014? And it's like, they always seem to fire their coach, their hitting coach in May because it's cold in Kansas City the first two months, and they always get up to a bad start, and then they heat up in the summertime because the weather warms up, and it's like the hitting coach always gets, like, a boost because of that. So uh, there's probably something to that, uh, but we'll, we'll see. I, you know, I, I have heard a lot of good things about Zumwalt. Um, there could be kind of, like, a turn-the-page, you know, um, uh, thing going on here where like okay we've kept some of these coaches on from before we've got some of these minor leaguers coming up now Bobby Witt's here MJ Melendez is here um, I've heard I think it was Flanagan Jeffrey Flanagan I think kind of implied that this change at hitting coach could 
be a precursor for Nick Prado or Vinny Pasquantino getting called up. So it makes sense having those guys in place. On the other hand, like like you say, like what about the pitching side? Cal Eldred. And you ask who would be the, the pitching equivalent. I think probably Paul Gibson would be the the guy you'd look at on the pitching side. He's kind of been there overlooking their pitching development process. I don't know if they see him as a pitching coach necessarily, but um, it seems like there's a guy there in place that maybe at least could take the role on a temporary basis. But uh, for whatever reason, they haven't made a move yet. Uh, maybe we'll see if they make a move. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you about some of the comments that Dayton Moore has, and J.J. Piccolo have been making uh, in the media. I guess first we'll start with one that isn't a direct quote, but it's from Annie Rogers, who writes at MLB.com. And um, she does great work, but you know when she gets something like this, it probably comes from the front office. And she writes, quote, the organization believed 2022 could be the start of a contention window over the next few years. That's an interesting thing to put out there because, you know, the Royals have been kind of careful not to say, you know, they always say, like, we want to win, but they're not putting out a, 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 a marker out there and saying, we're going to have a winning season or we're going to be contender. They're always kind of vague about it. What was your kind of reaction? I know you tweeted about it. What was your reaction to um, that comment that in, in, or that uh, uh, reporting by Annie Rogers? Yeah, it was well. It was interesting because she didn't attribute it to anybody specifically, right? Right. She just said the organization believes. So, the the trick with uh, with Annie's position is that she works for MLB.com. Like she basically works kind of with the league. You know, doesn't work for a place like, um, you know, the Kansas City Star or the Athletic. So there's a little less wiggle room that she has um, to do. You know to say what what she you know her her opinions i mean every beat writer is gonna do is is gonna do similar kinds of things where they're not gonna be opinion writers you don't expect them to be but i think she in particular just based off of the mlb.com you know position um she has to be a little bit more guarded but but because of that that's why i thought it was really interesting is that if she's saying that if she's reporting that she had had to have heard it from somewhere and it had to she it had to be good enough and reliable enough and serious enough and um, the Royals not wanting it to be a secret. You know what I mean? Like if the Royals didn't want that to happen, I can't imagine that she would have, you know, written written that, you know. So that was interesting to me is that, you know, it came from her specifically as opposed to someone like Alec Lewis who has, you know, a little bit more leeway and he's not, you know, a full day-to-day beat writer anyways. That's that's a whole thing with The Athletic. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was very interesting and I all I can say is, man, the Royals must have a very loose view of contention because there's no way they were going to win this year. Um, they're, like, nobody thought that they would they would win there was no projection systems that thought they would win like if you look at um predictions at mlb.com and at fangraphs and at royals review and you know we are all fans of the royals we're not you know um totally independent creatures here and none of us were like yeah we're gonna we're gonna predict them to win 90 games there's like nobody predicting them to win uh, and by win i mean like even have a winning season really there wasn't a lot of that um so it strikes me as, you know, kind of just shaking my head. It's it's kind of another example of the Royals just not accurately understanding how good their team is, which seems to be something that happens time and time again. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week. Is like if they thought 
they could be this would be the start of contention the window i mean then add some more pieces they came into the season with pretty much the same team as last year other than zach granke and i guess amir garrett um you know if you think this is the start of a window which you know yeah right if you take it a very loose interpretation like um okay maybe 500 ish uh, and you get lucky, and a few things hit go your way. 83, 84, 85 wins, maybe. Periphery of wild card chase with the expanded playoffs. Sure, I, you know, I guess you can squint and see it, but like, uh, then then you should be doing a little bit more. I mean, I don't expect them to like necessarily go all in and trade for like Frankie Montas, but like, th- there are some holes in this team. Uh, they could have maybe invested a little bit more money in in free agents or been a little more transactional, like we talked about the last couple of episodes. Um, maybe move, trying to move some of these guys that um, aren't aren't getting the job done, or just simply outright releasing a player that's not doing well, like Carlos Santana. Like, is he the first baseman for a contender? I don't really think he is. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting. You know, I guess I won't read too much in it just because I think they they probably, I, frankly, I think they almost always think they're a contender <laughs> or close to a contender. Um, but uh, it, it does give us a little insight into where they're thinking a little bit. The other thing that they've been kind of bringing up a lot. Uh, in regards to firing Bradshaw is they've been talking, and Dayton Moore, I think it specifically has been talking a lot about this, is um, how they've been doing with runners in scoring position, or, you know, with mostly the runners, or the runner at third, and uh, failing to get that runner in, not making contact, uh, not putting the ball in play. And, and, and look, Wednesday um, against, or Tuesday, I guess, against the um, White Sox, in the first game of that doubleheader, we saw... I mean, that was like a perfect illustration of what Dayton Moore was talking about. Like, they went 0 for, what, 11? More than that, maybe. Uh, with runners in scoring position, uh, just time after time again, they couldn't get a guy in from home from third. Uh, but on the other hand, they almost make it sound like that's the biggest problem with this team. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. What, would you, what do you think about uh, Dayton Moore making such a big deal about, uh, I guess, really strikeout rates with runners in scoring position? Well, the, the the bigger issue is that the Royals don't swing at very good pitches, and then when, when they do swing at pitches, um, they're not producing the kinds of results that, that are high average results. Um, they're still one of the worst teams in the league in line drive percentage. You would think that a team that doesn't want to strike out and wants to make contact and wants to, um, you know, get hits with runners in scoring position would be better at hitting line drives. You wouldn't maybe necessarily... Uh, expect that team to be a great home run hitting team, but you would expect them to hit solid, you know, line drives, the type of hit that Ryan Lefevre would be like, oh man, he did a great, you know, did a great job with that. Um, the other, the other thing about that is I think part, part of the Royals problem is that um, their lineup construction is pretty bad right now. Um, like we keep harping on Ryan O'Hearn being hit in cleanup, but Truly, like that's that's really bad. Like he had earlier uh, in in the frame of Wednesday's or Tuesday's doubleheader, um, he left eight batters on base. Um, and Ryan O'Hare is not a good hitter. He's not a major league hitter. He's just not a triple A or should be in Japan. He should not be on a, a big league squad. And here he is hitting cleanup. Similarly, um, the Royals have Carlos Santana, who is hitting in the 130s, 120s right now. And uh, he's hitting cleanup also. So, and then hitting third is uh, when he's healthy, at least. Salvador Perez, obviously, he went on the disabled list, but um, or the injured list. But um, the part of it, I think, is the Royals are 
focusing on the wrong kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But also part of it is when you have your worst hitters in the spots where you expect them have people on base, you're going to end up with a lot of missed opportunities because those hitters just aren't very good. Like O'Hearn has never been a high average hitter. Santana has never been a high average hitter. Perez is a low on base guy. He's going to make a lot of outs. You know, when those guys are hitting third and fourth, you know, you, you kind of get what you get. And the root problem is the Royals need to replace at least, um, you know, Santana and O'Hearn with other people who they had in the minor leagues. They could call them up today and they would be a better team for it. Yeah, I, I, I feel like just focusing on like situational hitting, it just like misses the big picture. Like this is a team that doesn't get on base, doesn't hit for power uh, outside of like Salvador Perez, which Dave Moore's have a few times saying like, you know, well, we're a small market team. You know, we can't afford power. We play in a big ballpark. To an extent, that is true. But there are plenty of small market teams that have developed power. And, okay, you can't develop home run power necessarily because of the ballpark. There, You should still be getting more gap power than this. Uh, you should still be getting guys, like you say, hitting large drives. Uh, and, and, and some of it goes to that. But I, I just feel like it's still kind of the same issue with this team. Like, focusing on, okay, if we you know, scratch and claw and productive out our way to a guy, a guy at third, we can just get him home and steal a few runs. And that's what we did in 2014. And that's what's, that's the only way we can win ball games in this stadium. And I mean, I feel like that's, they have done that before, but it's just such a hard way to win games, especially this day and age that, uh, you know, when you talk about putting guys playing the ball in play, I mean, the Royals are dead last or they had the, the best, uh, strikeout rate. They, they have the lowest strikeout rate among hitters in baseball. They're the best at putting the ball in play. Uh, the problem is when they put the ball in play, it's it's not a very good outcome. Like they don't make very good contact a lot of times. And I think Mike Petrello of MLB.com tweeted something out to the effect of like that's almost worse. Like yeah, that is actually worse. You don't want poor contact. You want solid contact or a strikeout. It doesn't really uh, do you good to make to hit weak little dribblers. So I, I don't know. I feel like Dayton Moore is kind of still stuck in his kind of. 1980s mindset of like that's how we won back in the day on AstroTurf and that's how we're going to win it that's how we won 2014 and they kind of got rewarded with the same, with the wrong lessons there and, and the game is, has changed and, and they're not changing with it um, yeah and the one the um, the thing to consider regarding the Royals in 2014 and 2015 uh, and I mentioned this a couple times is it's absolutely wild they were not just good at the things they were good at if you pull like the stats up between 2014 and 2015, they were the best defensive team in baseball. The best when you consider defense run saved and ultimate zone rating, DRS and UZR. They were the best team in baseball. Not second, not third, the best team in baseball in defense. Uh, they were the, they had the most stolen bases in baseball. Not second, not third, not fifth, the most stolen bases in baseball. And then by a couple of different metrics, you know, they had the best bullpen in baseball. Not the second, not the fifth, not the seventh. They had, in a two-year span, the best bullpen, the best defense, and arguably the best uh, base running in baseball. Not among the best, the best at all three of those areas. And that's just so rare to do. And the Royals, who have emphasized defense, they they haven't they haven't got there. They were just those two years. It was just a perfect storm of they were unbelievably good at these these three things all at the same time and they wrote it to um you know a couple of world series but i would not expect that to happen again it's just it's just too 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 much to ask 
for them to be the best in baseball for a multi-year stretch at so many different things, which is what they were when they were really good. Well, and even if they, if even if they do, like, like, how are they going to get there? I mean, they're not anywhere near that right now. So um, there's definitely been a disconnect and and the ability to produce that kind of a team. Real quick, what do you think? There's not going to be any more shoes to drop after Bradshaw being fired. Do we are we going to see anyone? else uh, either lose their job as far as coaching staff or uh, player personnel changes to kind of shake things up if things kind of continue like this? A week ago, I would say no, um, just because the Royals hadn't, you know, traditionally done something like this. I think the Royals actually firing Bradshaw, not just reassigning reassigning him or, or shifting the side, but actually going out and firing him, which is to my knowledge, I think the first time that the Royals have fired a coach midseason since they fired Trey Hillman, um, I think, uh, even when they like reassigned other coaches, like they didn't fire fire them, they just kind of you know moved them elsewhere. So the Royals doing that is is a serious indicator, and I think of how much like press that Pedro and Moore have been doing about this, and they've been saying. It, it almost seems like they're responding to the things that we're writing here at Royals <laughs> Review. Um, which is which says to me that a lot of people are saying it the same at the same time. It's you know not obviously just us as heroes over here who are the only people saying it. I think some flip some switch has kind of flipped in both the media and in the um, and in the clubhouse and in fans that there is no goodwill anymore. It's it's on. If the Royals keep losing, I think yes, somebody else could probably lose their job. I think probably the next shoe would be Cal Eldred, but there's a dark horse that let's say the Royals, you know, win 10 of their next 30 games. I think there's a dark horse chance that John Sherman steps in and, and starts to make some changes. But I think this is only the case because of the, the media landscape and the fan landscape has totally flipped almost a 180 where previously there were lots of people that were giving that would give, um, more and company like credit for the World Series. It's far enough out that um, that that goodwill I think is gone. And if the Royals keep losing, we could see some more moves. Of course, they are likely better than the team that we're you know that we're seeing right now. So I don't think that that's super likely because I expect the Royals to be better, and I expect the Royals to eventually call it Prado and Pascantino and Brady Singer. Um, you know, is back in the mound, and he's clearly one of the five best starting pitchers the Royals have. So there's a. I don't think that's likely because I think it's more likely that they'll get better, and that will give more and company cover not to, you know, get rid of anybody else. But if this continues, something else will happen. I think you're right. It would have to be Sherman stepping in at that point because I don't think Dave Moore and JJ Piccolo are going to make that make that move. But Sherman's got a downtown stadium to sell people on, and I don't think angry Royals fans are going to be that enthusiastic about, you know, funding a new stadium. Uh, so you're going to have to play, placate them a little bit and maybe maybe you know, another firing, uh, you know, that's what help helps uh, soothe the masses at least for a little bit. We'll, we'll see. How, well, yeah, I think I agree. I think they will get better here, in, here pretty quickly. But uh, well, let's see. Let's uh, take a break here. And then when we come back, we'll talk to Alec Lewis of The Athletic to discuss new hitting coach Alec Zumwalt. Well, joining me now is Alec Lewis. He covers the Royals for the Athletic. Alec, how are you doing today? I'm all right, Max. It's uh, it's been a wild ride. Um, obviously, it's his last couple weeks just been kind of interesting um, in Royals land. But uh, I'm all right. I'm I'm I'm. Uh, it's, it's it's a busy time. It's for sure. 
Yeah, and I guess the big news, of course, is that the Royals, you know, they got to a slow start and decided to go with a change at hitting coach. Terry Bradshaw has been let go. Uh, and they have uh, brought on Alex Zumwalt from the front office to serve as hitting coach for now. Mike Tosar also, also joining the coaching staff. Uh, it's kind of early in the season for a change like this, uh, but the team did kind of get off to a slow start, especially with the offense. And J.J. Piccolo uh, kind of made some comments that this had been in the works for a couple weeks. Uh, still, did the, the the change kind of surprise you, or did you see this coming? Yeah, I mean, I, it didn't totally catch me off guard. I mean, I think um, it, it reached a point where I think something had to be done, uh, considering just the situation. But I, I, they don't – I know this – this front office um, just doesn't make a decision like this lightly. It requires a lot of information and it requires a lot of um, conversation and, and thinking about the best approach. And I think ultimately as they looked at um, this roster that they expected to be better, uh, I, I think part of it, they, they, they hope that uh, the players will be accountable for some of the, the, the struggles. But I think they also in past years have attempted to kind of streamline their uh, hitting approach and process at the big league level to kind of mirror that uh, what they've done in the minor leagues. And so I think it just reached a point at which they wanted to uh, kind of push full throttle on some of that. I think this past offseason, having Keone Duran, who had been a part of the hitting development department, uh, come up to the big league level, that was an attempt at kind of bridging the gap. But then I think with the way the season began and the way the offense, which was expected to be better, was struggling, um, it just reached a point at, 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 at a point in time at which they they felt like they had to do something, and obviously um, Terry Bradshaw uh, they made the move with Terry. Uh, I think Alex Zumo is probably not a, a, a household name by any means, but I think for people that at least read your stuff, they've at least heard of him and gotten a taste of what he's been able to do in the minors. Uh, for those that maybe aren't as familiar, c- c- tell us what we should expect with Alex Zumwalt and what what he's done with the organization so far. Yeah, I mean, fascinating background. First of all, Alex Zumwalt was a player. Um, he was a pitcher and a hitter. He never reached the big league level. I believe he was a Rule 5 pick at one point, um, pitched and, and hit in multiple organizations. One of those was, I believe, with Atlanta. Um, that's where he, his relationships with some of the Rose front office members kind of began. Um, he was an advanced scout in the during the World Series runs, which means for people who don't know, I mean, he was – essentially watching all of those big league playoff games, the teams that they would face, um, and pinpointing any type of weakness that he saw. So he, I mean, that scouting lens from that time, I think kind of, um, I don't know, where it, it educates kind of how he views the hitting side. And I think it's where you get the game planning piece, you get uh, chasing certain pitches and identifying certain zones and hitting the pitches hard. And so – um, that background in 2019, when the Royals decided they want to revamp their hitting development um, processes, they uh, JJ Bacolo and, and Dayton Moore they placed Alex Zumwalt in charge of that. Um, then they went out and hired Keone Duran, uh, Drew Saylor, and Mike Tozar from the outside. Each of them kind of different uh, in how they view things and how they communicate with the player. But that hitting development department is is, is uh, a, a huge. I mean, they, they they deserve a lot of credit for what they did with MJ Melendez, um, and what they've done with Nick Prado, and a bunch of other guys. And Alex Zuma was in charge of that. I mean, I think 
I wrote this in a story this past week, but I mean, they, they have essentially three very basic mantras for the hitters and it's know thyself, each individual guy, know the type of hitter you are, swing at the pitches. You can hit really hard and take the ones you can't uh, and be elite in, in your preparation. And those are, I guess, general as you hear them this way. But um, I think having those three elements and then working from that in terms of how, uh, the type of game planning they do think about, uh, the type of pregame prep and, and work on the field that mirrors the, that game, that night's pitcher. And I think all of that um, is something that Alex Zumwalt has spearheaded in the minor leagues. And now the fact that he's with the big league club, uh, he and Mike Tozar, um, they have relationships with a lot of the young guys who I think this club's going to be relying on for the next uh, run that they hope happens toward the playoffs. And so I think um, he's just the, the uh, obvious choice to bridge that gap. I mean, this is a guy who, yes, he's done a lot in this organization. Other organizations have taken notice of how much success they've had to the point that I am certain that they would have been interested in having him uh, join other organizations. So, yeah, I, uh, uh, it, it, that's, that's what Alex Zumwalt provides. That's his background, and it's going to be interesting to see I, I, obviously, nothing's going to just totally change overnight. Um, but his process is that he's laid out in the minor leagues. It's just a clear platform for what can happen at the big league level. Yeah, Dayton Moore talked a lot about having the hitters prepared, and it sounds like that's kind of a strength of Zumwalt, having those hitters kind of prepared for different situations, different matchups. And, and like you mentioned, I think it is good that he has kind of a uh, you know know thyself, like different approach for each hitter, not, not a one-size-fits-all. So that is pretty promising, and I've heard nothing but great things about him. So it seems like a, a good this will be a good transition. It, it does sound like, though, that they've kind of emphasized this isn't necessarily a permanent hire like uh, they'll kind of assess, reassess the position at the end of the year. And I think uh, Jeffrey Flanagan and others have kind of suggested maybe, you know, Zumwalt, you know, he's more maybe more of a front office guy anyway. Do you expect uh, him to stay on past this year as hitting coach? Or is this – and if they don't stay stick with him, is this is it most likely they'll stick with some sort of internal hire to take that position next year? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the design is for him to remain the big league hitting coach. Um, and I think part of that is – because his value, Alex Zumwalt's value, is just incredibly great. I mean, when you think about the relationships that he has with guys, I mean, Bobby Wade Jr. and, and MJ, Nick Prado, and we could go down the entire, Vinny Pasquantino, these, these huge prospects that the Royals have in their system right now that are going to be focal points of the future. I mean, he has great relationships with them, partly because of just his ability to connect, his energy, and I think if that's the case, you just, as an organization, you got to think, like, how do we maximize this person's talent, this person's value. And um, so I, I think right now the design is not for him to be, to remain the big league kidding coach, but the way things might occur this year and the way, I mean, the other thing about Alex Zuma, he's got, he's got, I believe five kids um, and most of them young. So it, there's just a lot to that type of decision. It's a lot of time on the road. It's uh, a relentless job. I don't think people realize the type of scouting uh, and pregame prep that goes into this from the coaching side. I mean, it, it, it is just an all-hands-on-deck effort for hours before the game, hours after the game. Um, and so, yeah, I think for the time being, it's not the expectation of remain as the big league hitting coach. Um, but and, – and then as far as internal, I mean, I, I don't – it's hard to really pinpoint the direction that they would go, but I guarantee the way these next few months play out will kind of guide J.J. Piccolo – um, and Dayton more in terms of how they want to proceed with this. 
Well, I think when fans heard that there was going to be a coaching change this week, uh, most were expecting it would be on the, the pitching coach, Cal Eldred. Uh, J.J. Piccolo said that that hasn't been discussed at all, uh, although they said they would continue to analyze the position. Um, and there was some, I think you know, him and Dayton Moore both were kind of defending Eldred a little bit, you know, saying like, look, you know, we know some guys haven't taken a step forward, but also Daniel Lynch has taken a step forward. Uh, do you think Eldred's job is, is safe for now? Is that, is that a position where they're kind of comfortable with the progress that, that has been made, or, or um, is, is there still a possibility there's another shoe to drop here? No, I mean, it certainly feels like for now, Cal Eldred is, um, is, is safe. I mean, I, I, uh, you, you mentioned what the, the comments from, from those guys. I mean, I think what's notable is, is Cal Eldred was um, kind of roving in the minor leagues as some of these young pitchers were uh, rising toward the big league level. So he, he's had ties with them for a long time. Um, and I think the Royals are leaning on that uh, and, and those relationships to continue to guide uh, to allow him to to guide uh, their development, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an ever evolving thing. When a club has expectations to be better and to show progress in the late stages of a rebuild, and they don't, um, I think it, it, it's just the questions are going to continue to be asked. And I mean, I think the the Royals and the way they've explained this is, I mean, there was a greater expectation on the offense and the, some of the veteran bats to produce, whereas on the pitching side there's just such youth that I think they, they believed it would be kind of up and down. Um, and I, I think also the Royals front office members have taken ownership of certain decisions to promote guys uh, early on. Um, I mean, that said, is it's, it's now the third year since Brady Singer, Chris Bubich were promoted to the big league. Um, and it's now year two given since Daniel Lynch and, and Jackson Coar and, Jonathan Heasley were promoted. So, I mean, I, I mean, while they are young, um, I mean, you only get six years until free agency. So getting this right is of the utmost importance. And you had an interesting uh, article last week about um, kind of the, the progress of the pitchers and also some of the pitchers that have left uh, Kansas City. Uh, notably, I think Jacob Junis, who got to start for the Giants last week, uh, had some success. Uh, and I think a lot of fans have kind of uh, kind of focus zeroed in on that a little bit and said, well, why are these guys having success? And look, every every organization has a couple guys that, that leave and have success elsewhere. But uh, I, I did, there was one sentence you wrote that kind of uh, stuck out, I think, to me and a lot of other fans, where you wrote that notably, current Ro- Royals big leaguers are not ignorant of the strides others have made elsewhere. And I, I don't want you to name names or anything like that, but like, could you expand on that a little bit and just kind of talk about the some of the progress other guys have made and 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 uh what what players have noticed as far as pitcher development i'm just going to speak generally because i just feel like that's the it's just the most fair thing in all parties involved but i i think oftentimes i mean these players are in the clubhouse most of the day and they're talking baseball a lot and they're aware of what's going on in the baseball world a lot i always think of like the cliche of like are you guys paying attention to the standings? It's like, no, we're just focused on the day at hand. I mean, these guys are very aware. They're aware of what goes on. They talk to players who come to the organization. They talk to players who leave the organization, go elsewhere. Um, and so they're just very aware of uh, how certain things feel in terms of advancement, in terms of being behind the eight ball. Um, and I think that's just where that, that sentence swelled. I think – um, I mean, again, it, it gets tough because you can nitpick with certain names and uh, relievers specifically are, are just very, it's just a very volatile type of player in terms of 
them going somewhere else and, and adding certain things. But I think at some point when a number of guys leave and add uh, or, or, uh, or alter their arsenal, um, it just raises questions. And obviously you get into the thing of, of well, we, we as an organization provided insight, wanted them to kind of adjust their arsenal. But, I mean, again, it's like trust is built over time uh, with each of these guys. And uh, I, I think just that, that that sentence and that line was just kind of a, um, I don't know, an, an, an un, a, a point to the, uh, the players' awareness and understanding of the situation and the situations of others. Uh, I did also want to ask you about kind of the decision-making tree. Uh, so, you know, we saw DJ Piccolo and Dayton Moore both making statements. Uh, but Sam McDowell at the Star had a piece about how this is – uh, kind of a, a, a changing of the guard that this is more of a J.J. Piccolo decision and that he was kind of more results-oriented than, than perhaps Dayton would have been had it been you know, solely Dayton's call. Is that kind of how you see it? Is this like a stamp of J.J. Piccolo making his move, or is this still kind of a two-headed a leadership team that is making uh, decisions in conjunction with, with each other? Well, I, I think they're always in, in lockstep. Um, in terms of, I mean, these two guys are, uh, they, they've known each other for decades. Um, they, they've known how each other has operated for decades. But, I mean, I think, and, and I thought Sam's column was really good. I mean, when the decision was made last year to, to promote Dayton to president of baseball ops and J.J. Piccolo to general manager, that, that was the question. It's like, what, what changes? I think they, they mentioned that Dayton, I mean, excuse me, J.J. would, would kind of man the day-to-day. And, um, I mean, I do think it, it was J.J.'s, kind of task with this this gig is to ensure the process are in place to give this team the best chance of success now and in the future and not that Dayton Moore's weren't but I think JJ I mean because he's in it and 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 in charge day to day right now I mean he's just hyper aware hyper focused on kind of um every certain thing that 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 happens and so I think um this decision yeah it seemed to be seemed to kind of swell from JJ who has been on nearly every road trip and in the clubhouse and talking to staff and, and players. And, um, and then obviously with the collaborative nature of this front office, and how long they've known each other, I think they, they reached the decision that they reached. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question totally, but it's just kind of, it's not like, okay, this shows us that JJ makes every decision and boo. I, I just, it's, it's just, it's way more nuanced than, than that. And I think, um, just the the nature of the trust these guys have in each other, probably um, over is overarching with with all the decisions. Yeah, and I expect it to evolve too as time goes on. I mean, I think you know JD is probably still kind of feeling his oats a little bit and trying to figure out how to navigate in this structure, new structure, and then and date more as well. So uh, we'll have to see how he puts a stamp on the team. Uh, Alec, thanks so much for your insight. Is there anything you're working on in particular at the Athletic right now? Yeah. <laughs> No, I need it. I need it. No, yeah. There, there's a bunch of stuff. Certain elements. Um, downtown stadium stuff has been interesting. Uh, it's been on my mind a lot. Um, but there's, there's. No, I mean, I, I didn't talk much about Mike Tozar, um, but he, he'll be around at least for a month with the big league club. And for people who don't know, I mean, Mike Tozar was, I mean, I, really the the pivotal man in terms of turning Jorge Soler from the guy who was struggling to stay on the field to the guy who had 48 home runs and then ultimately was was huge in the World Series for the Braves last year. And Mike Tozer was also present for Salvador Perez in the offseason before 2020, where Salvi kind of started to turn the tide at the plate. And Mike Tozer was also huge in 
MJ Melendez uh, doing what, what, what he's now doing. I mean, we're speaking on, uh, I believe this is Wednesday morning, and, and MJ his first home run last night. So, I mean, he's another element to this. You, ha- you add Keone Duran, and I, I just think in this day and age, and I think the Giants kind of laid this platform, but having different types of coaches with different types of backgrounds, with different types of ability to create relationships at the big league level with the big league club, given how many adjustments need to be made and, and, and how many different types of guys there are, I just think it's so essential and that's why I think this move does shed light of the Royals kind of – I mean, it, 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 it is an advancement. Now, these guys obviously aren't um, – we're not sure how long they'll be in these roles. Alex Zumwalt and Mike Tozar at big level, but I just think it's kind of – it is an adaptation to kind of how the game is trended for the teams that, that are excelling. Well, I highly recommend reading Alex's stuff. I've been accused of getting like a kickback for linking to your article so much, but it's only because I think they're so insightful and so good, and I think they're really essential reading for any Royals fan. So I do appreciate that, and I thank you for your time and uh, being on the podcast this week. Yeah, the kickback will be in the mail, Max. No, but I, I, seriously, I, I appreciate uh, appreciate you guys as always. Um, appreciate the conversation. It's always fun um, and, and enjoyable. I, I and the Royals fans are what makes this fun, I will say that. So. Absolutely. All right, thanks a lot. We're back this time with uh, Jeremy Greco. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for uh, being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, you wrote uh, this week that the Royals have an accountability problem, uh, an article where you kind of outlined uh, their their problems over the years, holding people accountable, and the next day, or that day, I believe, they fire their hitting coach, Terry Bradshaw. I just want to know, how are you going to use your powers next? Uh, you know, I thought about seeing if I could get Joe Biden to go through with the whole student loan forgiveness thing, but I'm actually aiming to get uh, a free uh, pint of ice cream for everybody. Uh, I think that's that's the best use of my powers. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little about your column about uh, how the Royals haven't been holding people accountable. And what did you think of the, I guess they're they're finally holding at least one person accountable in Terry Bradshaw. So uh, I watched the game Saturday because uh, as anybody who goes to the game threads or reads the recaps probably knows, I do the Friday game threads and recaps. So even if I'm not watching the Royals, uh, most of the time I will watch them every Saturday. And the game was so bad and it just made me so frustrated and angry to just see the same things over and over and over again uh and so i i sat down and i wrote that article uh and and it's not anything i think groundbreaking i think pretty much every not everyone but a lot of people have seen the same things i saw i just kind of put it all into one place um you know it's it's basically like if you're in the front office or a coach, you, you, for most of baseball, you're, you're likely to lose your job. You're not likely to retire as whatever your job is. Ned Yost is very much the exception. Um, but then the Royals are the exception to that rule in that their front office staff and managerial staff and coaching staff uh, don't get fired very often. They more often get promoted or uh, at, at the very worst reassigned. Uh, we've seen that multiple times. And in fact, uh, if I recall correctly, they, they talked about how uh, they they were aiming to replace Terry Bradshaw as the hitting coach uh, for 10 to 12 days. 
uh, before it actually happened. And one of the reasons it took that long was because they were trying to decide, you know, could he stay on as a junior hitting coach or could they reassign him somewhere else or did it just make more sense to let him go? Uh, and ultimately they decided to let him go. Now, uh, obviously this is a move that kind of needed to be made. But the interesting thing to me is uh, I didn't cite Terry Bradshaw in <laughs> my article of uh, people who who are not being held accountable because hitting coaches are actually one position. The Royals have shown a willingness to hire and fire. Uh, the, they had Kevin Seitzer. They weren't hitting for enough power. They let him go. Uh, 2014, they famously reassigned uh, the hitting coach. I can't remember who it was, though I really should be able to. Uh, and, uh, and Andre David, I think was that Andre David, and then put uh, George Brett in his place for a month. Uh, so hitting coach is one place they've they've often been willing to make a change for whatever reason. Uh, and you know the hitting's not been great, but Bobby Witt Jr. is has been getting acclimated to the big leagues. Uh, the one, two of the worst offenders, Whit Merrifield and Salvador Perez, there's reason to think that they would come out of that their their spirals, and Whit Merrifield has. And I, I don't think you could say the new hitting coach has anything to do with that. Um, but they're still defending Cal Eldred as a pitching coach. And and I've gone on record multiple times as saying, uh, even if he's not doing anything wrong, he's not doing enough right to hold one of the 30 major league baseball pitching coach positions in existence in the entire universe. Uh, and he needs to be, uh, you know, if they want to reassign him, fine. I don't really care. I just think they need a new voice in there. Uh, Cal Eldred was the one I talked the most about because uh, we've got at least two instances of pitchers who were not buying into what the Royals were telling them to do. We had Brady Singer, who was not throwing his changeup, and we had Jacob Junis, who they allegedly, according to general manager J.J. Piccolo, had been trying to convince to throw a slider more, wouldn't do it, went to the Giants and started doing it, started having success. Uh, Brady Singer goes to the minor leagues, uh, starts throwing his changeup more. Uh, apparently that pitching coach was able to get through to him and and came up and had probably the best start of his career. Yeah, and uh, I, 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 it sounds like Cal is kind of here to stay. I, I, I'm kind of surprised. I think just as much as you, I thought maybe there were, there was they were going to make more of a change at that uh, in the coaching staff. Um, but I don't know. I think feel like there's another story out there of why Eldred has persevered <laughs> through, throughout uh, a lot of these kind of ups and downs. There's they've got to see something in him. I mean, it it's clever to to make jokes about oh you must have uh, incriminating photos but uh, come on in reality they must see something there but no one else sees it and i'll give you that dayton moore and jj piccolo probably know more more about baseball and coaching and scouting and pitcher development and all this stuff than i will ever they've probably forgotten more than i'll ever know but if everybody sees if everybody doesn't see what you see then no matter how much you know i think you got a question is what you see real and the royals don't seem interested in asking that question well also i think you know it seems like they're kind of you know that in 2011 they talked about how they flipped the switch and i think we've talked about this before like once you know they had some placeholder guys in positions like matt trainer at catcher and Kila Kahui at first base. And then, you know, they flipped the switch, brought up Hosmer, brought up Salvi, brought up, you know, they traded for Eski and Kane and, you know, Moose came up and, and, and it was a different team. And I think they're, they're kind of 
looking to do the same, you know, in the next year here. I mean, obviously it started already with some of the pitchers, MJ Melendez and Bobby Witt. Um, so we're starting to see that. And I think I, my, my theory is that getting uh, Zumwalt at the major league level, for this year at least, is part of that, getting a guy that the minor leaguers are familiar with. Uh, Keone Duren, having him work, you know, as an assistant hitting coach this year, getting Mike Tozar to work with them. Um, I think that's all part of it. But there are guys on the pitching side. I mean, it seems like you could probably do that on the pitching side as well. I know there are guys that have been working with the pitchers in the minor leagues, um, you know, Paul Gibson perhaps, or perhaps some of the minor league coaches. I mean, you know, maybe Dane Johnson, who is the pitching coach at Omaha, maybe Jeff Supon or J- Jason Simontachi, who's been, they've been kind of the floating pitching coordinators. Uh, I don't know exactly who the who the pitchers have been working with at the minor league level, but it seems like there would be someone like that there um, as opposed to Cal Eldred. And, but, you know, I don't know. Like you said, there's more they know that we don't have, aren't necessarily privy to. There, I just, the, the Brady Singer thing just blows my mind because they spent all year last year trying to get him to throw that change up. All year. And then he spends, what, a month in the minor leagues and he comes up and he's throwing it. What? Wh- who was coaching him in the minor leagues? What did they say that Cal Eldred didn't say? Something had to have changed. Yeah. Was I, it just the off season where he had time to work on it? And we just didn't see him throwing it in the big leagues because he didn't start in the big leagues. Well, I do wonder too if maybe the, just the, just the way he's been handled this year has been a was a message. You know, like okay, look, you're not throwing your changeup even though we've asked you and asked you. Um, you're going to the bullpen to start the year, and that, then you have to deal with that. And then well, he wasn't getting his innings, and they said, well, you're going to go to the minors and, and get stretched out. And maybe that was the career wake-up call he needed because, you know, he had had some moderate success. He was an okay fourth starter um, the way he was doing things, and maybe he felt like he didn't need to change, and maybe the Royals said, actually, you knew because what you're doing now isn't going to cut it, which that, that's a good thing. I think that's a really good you know that 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 wasn't you know that's the accountability we've kind of been talking about. Is that the way it played out? For sure, I don't know, but I, that's kind of my theory. Well, that if that's the case, then that makes me think that's what they were doing with Jacob Junis last year, mm. when they demoted him from the rotation to the bullpen and then to the minor leagues, uh, despite you know a moderate amount of success. And obviously that didn't work. And uh, so I, I guess I go back to what. What changed? Something had to have changed because Jacob Judas obviously went to the Giants and they were able to convince him to do it. Yeah, some of that buy-in that we've, we've talked about before. I, I did want to uh, talk a little about Dayton Moore and J.J. Piccolo, I guess, too. too. Uh, they kind of made the rounds uh, this week uh, to talk about the, the the poor start, but also the firing of Terry Bradshaw um, and just talk about where, you know, where the organization is. And uh, there was an interesting quote, I think it was on 810 uh, WHB in Kansas City, Dayton Moore was talking about how he acknowledged that people, uh, he, they've not been as transactional as maybe some people would like. And I know you've written about that. You've asked the Royals to be more transactional. Uh, here's his quote. He says, we've chosen to do it a certain way. I believe the more you stay with people and the more you believe in people, you make that change so strong and so tight and so together. So when it's time to win, there's nothing go- that's going to phase you and there's no quit. And you went through all the hardship and all the challenges and it makes you stronger. And I do think there is something to that, like the fact that they were loyal to Mike Moustakis when he was having his early career struggles and Alcides Escobar when he wasn't necessarily much of a hitter. Um, you know, Hosmer had his ups and downs. I mean, I think there's, there's some, something to be said for loyalty and, you know, the A's and the Rays for all their success. There is something kind of lacking in the postseason for them uh, at times. 
But what, what's what's kind of your take on his defense on why they have not been as transactional as perhaps uh, you and others would like? So there's, I think there's got to be a fine line um, because part of baseball is that we're rooting for these players and I wouldn't want to be an A's fan or a Rays fan even if they were winning the World Series every other year because the players are gone every other year. It's not fun. Um and in that degree, we've been a little spoiled in Kansas City, except, you know, when it time, comes time for the good players to stick around, uh, you know, that uh, Dayton Moore doesn't doesn't just trade guys, doesn't cut guys. He he shows a lot of loyalty. And and I think it's paid off in ways. Um, you mentioned Mike Moustakis, Eric Hosmer, all them. Salvador Perez, uh, they got him on a deal that was so good for the Royals, it was almost criminal. And and Salvador was like, you know, it would be kind of nice if you guys reworked this deal because I, I didn't really know what I was doing and I had a bad agent. And the Royals did. And then they got his production last year where he, you know, uh, was was one of the best hitters, one of the best home run hitters at least uh, in baseball, which was, you know, a lot of fun. And it seems like he could keep some of that production going for a while. and And that came because of that loyalty. But at the same time, there's got to be a point where you move on from guys. And, you know, they stuck with a Mike Wustakis and they stuck with a, 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 an Alcides Escobar and that made a lot of sense and it worked. But they also stick with guys like Omar Infante and Carlos Santana and Ryan O'Hearn. And, and sometimes it's just – it's really obvious that they're not going to get it back. It's not coming back or it wasn't ever there and – and so there's got to be this fine line between who are you showing loyalty to and who are you moving on from? And the Royals don't seem to be able to find that line. I'm not sure if they're interested in finding that line, but if they're looking for it, they sure haven't found it. Uh, yeah, speaking of Carlos Santana, yeah, Josh Vernier, who does a post-game show on 610 Sports for the Royals, and, and frankly, he's been kind of – there's a lot of fed up in his voice when he talks about the Royals a lot, which is coming to kind of <laughs> interesting to hear. But he, uh, he, was, he was on 610 Sports uh, this week saying that he asked, um, you know, why, uh, why Carlos Santana was continuing to play. Like he thought that, that, that perhaps the first base DH position would be a better spot to put Hunter Dozier or MJ Melendez. And when he approached Mike Matheny, and this is his words, it's not a direct quote from Matheny, but according to Vernier, he said that Matheny told him that, quote, we signed Carlos to be our first baseman, suggesting to me that, and to me, I either read that as he, he's been told by management to play Santana, or or he's kind of also bought into the kind of sunk cost fallacy of like, well, we're paying him $10.5 million, he's going to be our first baseman, so... I don't know. Do you do you think this? What do you what do you what do you think they're trying to get out of playing Santana at this point? This is something that's been consistent under Ned Yost and Mike Matheny, um, and maybe they just both have that same ideology, and and that's why one of the reasons they were both hired by uh, Dayton Moore. But uh, that suggests to me that that's that's an edict coming down from the front office, and uh, if so. That I mean, it doesn't really matter where the edict is coming down from. The money is spent, as as I think we've all at Royals Review mentioned time and time again when it comes to the sunk cost fallacy. The money is spent; it's gone. Move on. You got to try something else. There, there's Vinny Pascantino. There's I. There's there's Hunter Dozier. There's uh, Nick Prado. Heck, there's even Ryan O'Hearn. I'd rather see Ryan O'Hearn than Carlos Santana. It just doesn't make any sense to keep playing Carlos Santana when he's not doing it, regardless of what you paid him, because the money is gone. Uh, 
Uh, and it's it's just a huge problem. That And this has been a consistent thing with the Royals, where we saw them start, again, Omar Infante kept getting starts at second base. Well, we paid him a lot of money to play second base, but he's not the best second baseman on the team. Uh, Alex Gordon, when he was in his decline, paid him a lot of money to play left field, so he was going to play left field, even if he couldn't play it anymore. Uh, it just We've seen it over and over and over again, and it's just, again, one of those things that I go back to. There's no... There's no accountability. There's no accountability to veteran players to play better because they're going to play. They're going to get paid. They're going to play regardless. And there's no accountability to the to the front office and the coaching staff that keeps signing these guys and keeps putting them out on the field uh, when it's clear that they're making the team worse, not just not helping the team, but actively making the team worse. And we're back and we'll wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Matthew, what do you have for us this week? So nobody ever said that the Royals Review Reviews had to be a good review of something. It's um, true. There's no <laughs> I rules. Watched, there are no rules. Slash, we make the rules <laughs> as we go. Uh, so my Royals Review Review is uh, Blade Runner. Uh, so I have a number of films sitting on my HBO Max to watch thing. And on Sunday night, it just happened to be about the time my wife was watching something else. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch one of these movies. I haven't seen Blade Runner. I'm going to watch Blade, Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner has a lot going for it, I think. Um, the score is, for the most part, like, you know, really solid and very much in the 80s kind of sci-fi, um, you know, synth sounds. And it's, you know, it's, it's pretty fun. Um, the cinematography is, is great, you know. Um, and it's it's kind of nice to see all these real practical effects um, in an age where, you know, everyone's like, ah, oh, you know, don't bother with the... Uh, with the makeup or the uh, costumes and everything, we'll just CG them, CG them in. So it's really nice to see this like really grounded kind of world and everything. But, but the one thing uh, that I have to give a, a very big thumbs down to overall, I think the, the movie was fine. It was a little slow, um, but I didn't like the book that it's based on, which is Do Androids Dream of, uh, of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Um, I don't like. I haven't read a Philip K. Dick novel that I like. Um, <laughs> But I digress. Um, there's this scene where uh, Harrison Ford's character and uh, the the love interest uh, who just saved his life. Uh, I'm not giving giving spoilers. This is a 40 year old movie. <laughs> um, are you know they go back to his apartment and he's shaken up and he you know he cleans the you know the blood off of his off of his face and everything and then he lays down on this couch um, and his shirt's unbuttoned and you can see him all in his hairy chest sort of glory and then this saxophone comes in that at the time was just like just that was just part of like the the music landscape at the time and but in 2022 it was the funniest thing that i've ever heard and i just think it's very interesting how that can be you know so different um 40 years which is not a huge amount of time you know we've been making music for for long time with instruments that that we've made Hundreds of years, thousands of years. 40 years is not a very big time, but it is enough time for the saxophone heavy, you know, uh, like love music to sound, oh, this is you know, appropriate to, this just sounds ridiculous and I can't stop laughing. So that's my Rose Review review. If you watch it, it's hilarious, that scene, and it's not supposed to be. Uh, so I watched uh, Blade Runner 2 for the first time last year. I had never seen it before. I fell asleep during the midway point. I did not care for it. I I don't know. I'm sure it's really good, but I it's fun. It didn't. It, it yeah. It was slow. 
So I'm going to go with kind of an oldie movie. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it's not that old, uh, but uh, A Knight's Tale, uh, which starred Heath Ledger, uh, Alan Tudyk, Paul Bettany, and Mark Addy. And uh, Heath Ledger was not particularly good in that role. He was fine. Uh, he was he, he was just kind of a generic stand-in protagonist. But that worked because uh, Addy, Bettany, and Tudyk kind of stole the show with uh, all of their antics. Uh, it's a very fun movie uh, about a bunch of, of peasants, basically, who decide to pretend that one of them is a knight and can and, and start entering jousting competitions uh, for fame and money. Uh, and it's it's really funny. It's got some anachronistic music, which uh, was a big risk at the time, but really paid off in terms of feel of the movie and having a lot of fun with everything. And uh, it's it's just one of my favorite movies to watch. It just always makes me happy. And for my Rose Review review, um, there's an article at the Players Tribune, which is written by uh, athletes all of all, all different sports. Uh, this week, there's one by Adam Jones, a former outfielder for the Orioles, uh, and it doesn't sound. It kind of sounds like a a retirement, uh, although he says at the end he'd still like to play. So I don't know if this, he's necessarily done with his career, but he talks about his, his experience in Japan. He played uh, in Japan in 2020 and 21, um, and uh, you know, playing overseas can be kind of a disillusioning experience for a lot of players uh, just because of the culture uh, differences but he like really embraced it and he embraced it during the pandemic which a lot you know even more challenges and he moved his whole family over there and uh, there were some challenges with that but he really seemed to embrace the experience like like totally and uh, just really cool read uh, read from him and uh, I'm, I'm really glad he had a, such a positive experience and his last if it's his last uh, game, like one of his last games, he hit the he had the game-winning home run in like game five of the Japan series. So, pretty neat way if that's the way he ended up ended up going out. But uh, really cool to read his experience in Japan, and uh, just kind of makes you want to travel really, even if nothing else. So definitely yeah. check that out, at the Players Tribune. So that'll do it for our show this week. Thanks for uh, Alec Lewis of The Athletic for coming on. Thanks for Jeremy and Matthew for coming on different times and, and uh, uh, making it happen. And thanks for uh, everyone uh, for listening and from everyone at Rollers Review Radio. We'll talk to you next time. Hey!